This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. On the pod today, we have Ryan Watts, former candidate for North Carolina's 6th Congressional District. And uh, we want to do something a little bit different here and kind of dissect uh, a run for Congress. So, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be on with you, Nathan. Awesome. So let's get started and just kind of dive right in. If you're okay with it, I'd love to go kind of chronologically through. Tell me a little bit like why you decided to run in the first place, what were the considerations that you had to make, and like, what was your thought process leading up to your announcement? Well, that uh, hopefully I won't take too long with this answer because, as you can imagine, it's a long and winding journey <laughs> that, um, you know, for me, I'm not really sure this is the exact right starting point, but uh, obviously, 2016 happened, uh, and a lot of people, myself included, realized that there was more that needed to be done. That uh, you know, there was a sentiment out there, and I think there still is that we we had people who'd been in office for a long time. We certainly didn't have enough millennials uh, who were that engaged politically. You know, I, I think sometimes the millennial generation gets a bad rap uh, unfairly. Uh, for our lack of engagement, I, I actually have become very, uh, very encouraged by what I've seen. But um, after 2016, I said, "Okay, I've got to, I've got to get more involved here." So um, the the idea actually was really planted in my head. Um, I had been thinking about it for a month or two, and uh, on New Year's, I had some folks over, and we were sitting out on the deck, even though it was cold, and. Uh, Said, hey, you know, you should really, you should really run for, for office. And I said, well, okay, well, where do where do I begin? And and what do you think I should run for? And uh, this friend of mine said, uh, I think you should run against uh, Mark Walker in the sixth congressional district in North Carolina. And um, I had to work hard not to kind of spit my drink at him <laughs> because uh, you know, as a first time candidate running for Congress, I thought that seems like a lot to take on. And so I began the process. Uh, I promised him that I would actually go and investigate what it would be. And uh, I went to candidate trainings and learned, you know, a lot of stuff that I, I thought I already knew, but a lot of stuff I didn't already know about campaigns and how to run it. And um, I didn't come in. I have no family members who have ever run for office or anything like that. Uh, so I didn't have a playbook. So I, I kind of had to go build one. And I reached out to political operatives throughout the state of North Carolina. Uh, I reached out to people who were already elected um, in the very beginning stages. Um, I didn't get a lot of people who were <laughs> um, that open to uh, me, uh, who didn't necessarily make all the time for me, but that slowly started to change. And the more and more conversations that I had with people uh, throughout the process, you know, I, I kind of expected someone to say no, to say you're not ready or, or what have you. And you know, it never really happened. And so after, you know, I'm sure over a hundred conversations, 
uh, with party chairs and uh, county party folks and previous congressional candidates and all sorts of stuff. Uh, we we realized like, hey, you know, this is something that not only I can do, uh, but uh, the feedback was really positive, and the person that I was, you know, running against needed to be challenged and was not someone who was acting in any way close to what I would consider the interest of the, the majority of people uh, in, in the district or in the state or in the country. And uh, so we knew it was an uphill battle. In fact, it was a unconstitutionally gerrymandered district. Uh, one of the prime examples for gerrymandering um, nationwide, the Supreme Court is about to hear a case related to our district. So, I mean, I went into it knowing it would be an uphill battle, knowing that no candidate had ever gotten more than 41% in the district. And, uh, you know, we ended up getting 45%. So we made some progress and we did some really good things. And we, we, we talked about issues and we engaged people. And uh, ultimately, you know, I think we did the right thing. You said that you went to the party chairs, you went to candidate training, you just started having those conversations. But when I asked the question, you said you weren't sure you would start there. So in your mind, thinking about you know the beginning of the race and the how-to, where would you begin for a listener who's potentially considering running for office? The first thing that I did was I looked around at who was currently in office across a variety of uh, levels, right? From, from the county level all the way to state house or senate. And also to Congress. And, uh, you know, there were some pretty much everyone um, in, in my in my hometown of Burlington uh, was a Republican. Right. So uh, then it became, OK, they're all Republicans. I'm a Democrat. So, you know, who's doing what? Who's talking about what? And, um, you know, the this initial suggestion of, of, hey, run against Mark Walker. Uh, he's he's terrible. <laughs> was ultimately where we landed. But I, I looked at their voting records and I looked at what they said. And, um, and then I started to talk with fellow Democrats about uh, various people and uh, set up all sorts of meetings with the district chairs and the county party chairs to say, hey, you know, what do you think about me potentially running? And get, gathering that feedback was really great because not only did I learn a lot about things that I didn't even know about where I'm from. Um, I also learned a tremendous amount about, you know, from, from a loyal democratic, even perspective, what the shortcomings that I would have and, and the, the shortcomings I would need to address and address very quickly. Uh, and I think one of the biggest challenges there, and, and this is really relevant for the, for our audience today is, you know, we grew up in the age of social media and, uh, no matter what, and we're seeing this more and more, uh, you know, with uh, with uh, Governor Northam in Virginia, right? There's there are there's stuff that comes out of the woodwork that you don't even remember, and and so I had to go back and look at my social media to make sure that I hadn't done anything irresponsible or 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 anything like that. Unfortunately, you know, there wasn't anything that was glaring, but I, you know, that's something that we we all as millennials have to think a lot about is how are, what, how are we positioning our own brand personally? And then how would that translate to a potential candidate image, uh, which as we all know is, is a large part of the battle, right? The image that you can create. So that those were kind of the immediate first steps out of the box. And it sounds like uh, 
running for office was never something that you had been kind of planning for years or a decade for. And that's one of the critiques of kind of the establishment is you have to kind of be planning for that to make sure that you're networking with the right people, that you're getting the right uh, in the right rooms and the right approvals and even building your own personal brand, that type of thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think what's encouraging uh, is that, you know, we've seen someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who had never run for anything before successfully, you know, even challenge a very prominent sitting Democrat and winning and then winning a general election. And that has kind of started to dispel the notion that you have to start at a certain point, right? Uh, the only feedback, you know, that I really got that was that gave me pause was, well, you've never run for anything. Why wouldn't you start at the city or county level? And, you know, just from my own personal background, you know, I, I travel all over the country working with clients uh, to help retrain workers, to think outside the box about how they're positioning themselves and, um, you know, how they're positioning their people for success. And so I felt like my perspective was broader, um, having spent just as much time outside of North Carolina from a work perspective over the last decade or so um, to to what was local. I, I felt like I knew just as much, if not more, about national politics. And so for me, that was a more natural lo starting location. But um, that is not normal, or at least it hasn't been normal. And so I think it's great that uh, there is be starting to become more acceptance for, you know, what younger people bring to the table and how they think about the world and that we don't necessarily have the, you know, multimillionaire friends. We don't necessarily have the, 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 the long list of uh, the long catalog of, of people, the long Rolodex, I guess is the best way to put it, but um, that you can, um, that you can develop the connections that you need. Not all of them are going to be the wealthy donors that you might want. But um, if you're really passionate about making a difference, um, those connections will fall into place. You've just got to be persistent. I think that's really great advice. So so let's move on now to you. You've decided to run, you have announced, and now you need to start up your campaign. And that's basically what campaigns are. They're just startups. You go from zero to 100 as fast as you can. Um, what does that look like? How do you start a campaign? Well, I, I think it's important. Uh, you mentioned the the announcement. Um, you know, I think that that is uh, really important, especially as a first time candidate. Um, one of the first political consultants that I work with said that the only two times uh, that you can get, be guaranteed any sort of press coverage is when you announce your campaign. And whenever your first uh, election night is. So, you know, for me, that was very true. I um, was very deliberate. We filed with the Federal Election Commission uh, so that we could start raising money in July of 2017. But we didn't officially announce uh, the campaign until August. Um, and there were a few factors there, right? There's when on the calendar is everything falling? Um, I saw a couple candidates uh, here in North Carolina for statewide office actually declare their candidacy in between Christmas or rather uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so during that holiday period, you know, their announcements got drowned out. There, there just wasn't as much attention paid to it as it could have been had they waited just a month or two until after the new year. And, and likewise, 
you know, summer, uh, people are on vacation, people are not paying attention to politics. So waiting until uh, either August or September, I think was in the late August at the late at the earliest uh, was really strategic because it made sure that we got people when they were back, kids were back in school and people were starting to pay attention again to politics. So I think that the timing of it is really important to think about and to make sure that when you do announce that you come out really strong to your point out of the box with a, a great announcement video, that your website looks great, that you can accept donations right away. Um, and, and especially for a younger candidate like myself, um, I wanted to have an incredibly detailed platform uh, that that wasn't just, you know, jobs, education and healthcare, right? That had some meat on the bone for people to consider because, you know, I, I'm young and I, I look even younger. So I wanted people to know right away that there were some policy chops that we that we had thought really critically about the issues, not just where we came down on the issues, but how we plan to address those issues. And so what it led to was the most detailed platform of anyone in North Carolina of any race um, across the state. Uh, and, and that lent some really early credibility uh, to the campaign. So let's move from that announcement, making sure you start really strong. Uh, you know, I showed up at everything. Um, I put, you know, 25,000 miles on my car really quickly, <laughs> driving to every county party monthly meeting, um, you know, Indivisible had become a force to be reckoned with at that point. So showing up to Indivisible meetings to listen to them and, and, it, and not, it, not all of those meetings did I have a chance to speak, right? It was part of it was showing people that I cared about what they had to say and not just about me and my platform. And so um, going in with that listening mentality, especially as a new candidate who had everything to prove and, and absolutely no political stripes yet, uh, was really important and showed people that I was serious about how much of an undertaking this would be as a congressional candidate. But I think that's true of any candidate that you've got to show up and you've, you've got to even just like go for coffee at a different place every day, show your face, let people know that you're around the community that you're out and about. Yep. No, that that's really helpful. And I think, you know, even emphasizing the announcement is a really good call out. Um, so after the announcement, did you immediately start campaigning full time or were you still working part time? What did that look like for you? Yeah. You know, for, for younger people, uh, I think we're so used to seeing these older, uh, older people run for office. And, you know, I think that that is more to do with financial resources, being able to step away from work uh, or even donate large quantities of money to your own campaign, which, you know, I was not in a position, still am not in a position to do. Uh, so I kept working full time throughout the entirety of the campaign. Uh, I took one month off um, a month before election day. Uh, fortunately, I, my employer was gracious to allow me to do that. Um, but I had to work full time throughout the campaign. And so, you know, raising money is what they tell you, you have to spend, especially early on, like 90% of your time doing, uh, which I really hated. That was the part of the that was the only part of the campaign that I didn't like. Because when you're raising money, you're in a room on the phone, you know, for three or four hours at a time, uh, no distractions. 
someone, uh, you know, they always said, have someone in there who can run call time for you, who can pull up the next person you're supposed to call, who can keep you organized, send follow-ups, all of that. And so, you know, early on, it it was really just me doing it, um, especially because I was traveling still for work. So at five o'clock, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd get done with work or as early as I could get done with work. And I'd pretty much just immediately start calling and raising money from five o'clock until eight or eight thirty or whenever people stopped picking up the phone. So I was multitasking for sure. And over the course of time, it got easier because I started, you know, hiring people once I started raising money. Uh, I started finding interns who were at local colleges or universities that could help. Uh, started putting together a team that that really made this campaign go. But early on, especially, and even beyond, you know, election day, it was a huge uh, professional and personal challenge to juggle that. How much money did you end up raising? Uh, $350,000. So to me, someone who has never run a campaign or been a candidate, that sounds like a lot of money. It, it does. Um, but I think what's really important to pay attention to there is that uh, a lot of that money came towards the end, right? Um I would say over half of it came in the final three months. So, um, you know, early on, I think our first financial report that we filed uh, at the end of 2017 showed us having raised like 90 something thousand dollars. And that so that was that wasn't bad. Um, our first financial report actually was in September uh, and it was it showed forty thousand dollars. And I think, you know, um, a significant chunk of that was my own money because uh, I knew that I was making an investment. And so I, I, would, I would contribute to my own campaign. I think I ended up contributing $15,000 and uh, I was, you know, pension pennies myself personally to make that happen. So uh, that's still a lot of money, but um, it was very slow going early on and it was very easy to get frustrated um, to keep the lights on, to keep paying for the things that we needed to buy, to pay my consultants and staff. We were very tight on money for the first at least six months. And uh, then, you know, after the primary, when we won, you know, we won, I think, close to 80% of the vote in the primary, which was great. Then it, it got a lot easier. But even then, you know, being a 28-year-old candidate, um, was difficult to get people, you know, who are 50 plus years old who can write those thousand plus dollar checks to, to say, hey, yes, um, we want to invest in you. And so a lot of it early on is, and even towards the end was done by going and having, you know, house meetings, uh, house parties, if you will, um, at people's houses across the district who uh, people would chip in $50, $100, you know, here and there. And so every night we were hoping to just raise a couple thousand dollars uh, from, from this little get together. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will Will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout-out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Now, let's say you're post-primary. You are working full-time. You've put 25,000 miles on your car. You've raised or are spending almost all of your time raising money. What does the day in the life of a congressional candidate look like after you are the Democratic candidate, the Democratic nominee going against a Republican? You know, for me, and part of this is obviously dependent on where you're running. So if you are in a, a big city, uh, which I'm not, <laughs> I, uh, I think the experience is probably a little, di- a little bit different. You know, there's, there wasn't any major media market uh, fully in my district. We kind of split the Greensboro, North Carolina and Raleigh, North Carolina district since we sit in between those two media markets. And so, you know, there was some press coverage, but um, from the beginning until the end, it was very much a grassroots style campaign. Um, as after the primary, we were still spending a ton of money raising, uh, sort of time <laughs> raising money. Um, but the, I think that is the part of the campaign that is the most fun. Um, it's it's May or or whenever your primary is March, April, or May, even June. Summer was a little bit slower, um, but there's still a lot of events, a lot of people that want you to show up at various things. Uh, I, I think the hardest part about the campaign uh, was the number of different events um, that w- that people said, "Hey, we'd love to have you here." And um, I don't like saying no to any of those things, but there's so many out there um, that you have to prioritize. And so, um, other than raising money, you know, prioritizing where you're spending your time based on your map and, and where you need to win votes and things like that, that is a, a major decision point and something that every candidate needs help dealing with, um, scheduling as well as prioritizing. So um, a, a lot of the best times that, that I had were spent in those various community meetings, uh, listening to, to people, and also um, our staff. We had such a fun staff that was ready to pick up and go at any moment's notice. So um, I, I would say <laughs> uh, if there are a couple themes from you know what that looks like, it's uh, that you have to be highly organized and have a, a really great schedule, especially around a work schedule. Um, and you have to be agile as well uh, to, to meet. You, know, you, you might not learn about a critical uh, community meeting uh, until the night of and, and have to totally change everything and, and go. Um, so that is, it, it was not, I will say as glorious as I think some people make it out to be right. Um, I think everyone thinks that being, especially a federal office candidate is very glorious, but, um, it's, it's filled with a uh, very quick meetings and then a lot of time in the car in between the next one. Uh, and, and that's what it was like for me. 
So how did your priorities and your schedule change from 90 days out from the election, 60 days out, 30 days out, one week out? What was the breakdown of community events, fundraisers, door knocking, phone banking? What did that look like for you? Well, I'll start by saying, you know, before the primary, uh, we definitely took a shotgun approach. We took every meeting, every every fundraiser we could plan, every little thing we, we took um, based on where our connections were. And after the primary, uh, we realized that um, or we, we had some shuffling to do, that we had done a good job in the primary, but that there were some communities that we had not done any uh, outreach to at all because we hadn't yet developed those connections. And so after the primary, I spent a lot of time developing connections where I didn't have them because they were, they were critical, underserved, mostly constituencies. Um, obviously, you know, every candidate out there makes time to go to the rich neighborhood to raise money, but um, not every candidate does a very good job going to the underserved communities, making sure that those communities know that you have their backs and developing that trust takes time. So from, you know, May until really the end of summer, that was our focus was, you know, let's make sure that in communities like East Greensboro, which is um, over, has an overwhelming population of, of people of color, um, is under the average income level, has not been well served traditionally from any level of government, um, you know, they, they really needed some attention. And I spent a lot of time listening uh, to that group uh, in, in communities like East Greensboro. And then uh, as, as after summer, that's kind of when everything kicked into high gear. Um, September and, and at some periods over the summer, we were doing a lot of door knocking. So um, making sure that we got to every big precinct where we could conceivably knock doors in a rural community, we did that, you know, basically until the end of September. And then in October, um, we created a really cool concept where we had house parties for phone banking. So we had uh, every, we had twice a week, we had big phone banking nights where we had, you know, between five and 10 different locations of people, whether it be small groups of three or as many as 20 people in a, in a certain, you know, centralized location making phone calls uh, to people we hadn't reached out to yet. And then I think the, the third thing was at that point, it was time to send out mail. So um, a lot of time uh, towards that last 60 days, we called it our 60 day battle plan <laughs> was um, let's shoot a bunch of videos. Let's make sure that we have plenty of content for social media. Let's make sure that we have all of the pictures that we need. Let's put together our graphics for our mail and also for social media and so we really shifted into a marketing operation in the last 60 days. And then, of course, you know, showing up at events that we needed to be at in, at the same time. And by that point, you know, the fundraising uh, was, was kind of self-sustaining. So we were able to spend less time on fundraising and a little bit more time doing the work that I think is the most important, which is direct outreach uh, to, to constituents. And what did Election Day look like for you? <laughs> election day was the longest and slowest, um, but also fa fastest day uh, I think I've ever had outside of um, just getting engaged. <laughs> that day was also very long and also... Wait until your wedding. <laughs> exactly. So um, the 
Uh, my campaign manager uh, did an, a fantastic job. Um, we went to every single county in uh, of eight counties in this district uh, and went to a polling, at least one polling site in every single county. So at 6 a.m., uh, my communications director and my photographer, we all jumped in the car. Um, my communications director was driving and we stopped at, I think, 10 different voting sites. And we were there um, at the polls in Greensboro until they closed. We had uh, my campaign manager was driving a van around all day, uh, picking up people who needed rides to the polls. Uh, we, we were all hands on deck with poll greeting and all sorts of stuff throughout the day. And, you know, the Democratic Party also did a really great job, um, despite the fact that there was no election above Congress on the on the uh, on the ballot. Having um, every county had organized people to be at the polls, hand out literature and slate cards for Democratic candidates. Um, and so a lot of uh, leading up to Election Day was also coordinating uh, the, the get out the vote efforts. But it was a it was a whirlwind and uh, it was a lot of fun to see all of the hard work you put in come to fruition, even though later that night, um, obviously, it didn't come out just as we wanted to. Right. So so things didn't work out the way that you would have hoped, but you did secure 45 or 46 percent of the vote. Uh, what was your immediate reaction to that? Well, it's really funny um, because the polls closed, as I mentioned, and I was at a poll and I was about 20 minutes away from where we were having our, our watch party. And I'm in the car um, as we're driving to the watch party and the ballot totals started coming in uh, as we were uh, driving. And in that first release of votes, uh, we were up by five or 7,000 votes or something like that. And so that was when it got, it, it became real that, hey, we might actually have a shot here. In fact, when I pulled up to the watch party, they already had CNN, you know, on a projector screen. And um, as I walked in, they were looking at North Carolina, showing the districts where Democrats were leading. And um, there was actually a zoom in graphic of, of my race because we were up, I think, 55, 45. Um, after early vote, and so we knew that's about where it needed to be for us to ha for us to have a fighting chance, and so that was a really exhilarating moment, <laughs> even if it was short lived, um, because uh, we realized, hey, we we did such a good job that we're being talked about nationally right now on CNN. Um, of course, um, then some of the redder counties um, started to report and. The blue, the two blue counties that we won, uh, Guilford County and Chatham County, uh, stayed blue for us all night. But we started losing our lead in a couple of the other swing counties, uh, traditionally red counties, and uh, it became apparent then that uh, you know we weren't going to win. And so, um, when I realized uh, that it was over, uh, I had Congressman Walker's number. And I, I called him on the phone and he was at his celebration. I could hear it in the background. It was significantly more raucous than ours was, to say the least. Um, but he was very gracious on the phone. And I, I asked him if he could do me a favor. And he said, absolutely. Uh, you Tell me what, whatever it is. And I said, you know, now that you've been reelected, I hope, you know, I, I would ask that you stand up and speak up when um, the president conducts himself in a way that um, is unbecoming of what I know you believe, uh, that we should all 
work together and that we should all do so in the most cooperative, collaborative, and um, least ugly way possible. And he, he agreed. Uh, he said, absolutely, I am more than happy to, to do that when and where I can. Uh, unfortunately, he hasn't followed through on that. So, um, But it, it was a very gracious conversation. And um, then I came back in the room and um, we gave everyone an opportunity to speak, every one of our staff members and volunteers. And, um, and, and then I wrapped it up by just saying thank you because so many people devoted so much time and effort, um, many of whom weren't paid, um, unfortunately, you know, just the reality of, of campaign funding. But it was a really heartwarming night to know that we did something really great. And uh, we ended it in the classiest way I think we could have possible. So what I always find fascinating about campaigns, win or lose, there does have to be some kind of wind down or closure of a campaign. So have you closed your accounts? Are there any other obligations that you had to meet after the election? What did that process look like? I knew how I would how I was going to feel if I won. Um, I didn't realize how I would feel um, as a losing candidate. That was just something that I had to experience for myself. And um, I, ironically, or surprisingly, I think to myself was that I woke up the next day feeling just as positive as ever. And um, so we've actually made the decision to keep our accounts open um, uh, and and continue to we, we've still got you know a, a decent amount of money on hand. So um, what where we go from here is still TBD. But to your point, uh, there's still a ramp down. You know, you've got to transition staff and uh, a lot of time I spent personally uh, helping other folks find their next job and. Uh, so I spent a lot of time making sure that our staff had a, a great soft landing spot. Uh, I think the other thing was, you know, a variety of groups reached out after the election and, and said, hey, we'd love you to come and speak about uh, your experience and what that was like. And so I did a variety of different panels, you know, in reflecting on the outcomes of the election, many alongside uh, other candidates as well. And that was kind of a cathartic experience in a way um, to be able to look back and reflect on what you did and what could have gone better. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But um, even even now, you know, I'm still showing up at various events being asked to speak, uh, to talk about the election, to talk about how important 2020 is. And so I think, uh, especially as a younger candidate, what's really important is that you don't just show up for an election and disappear. I think that that creates trust issues for future other younger candidates. I think it's really important that if you do decide to run um, or even be involved in an election, that it's not just a uh, show up for the votes and then disappear off the face of the earth. Uh, and so that's something I've been really conscious of doing is to make sure that people don't just see me for the election and then never see me again. I want people to know that I'm not just invested in getting good people elected. I'm invested in the process going forward. And so that's what I've been trying to keep up as we as we've uh, entered into the early months of 2019. So you you said you still have some cash on hand. Your accounts are still open. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Can we expect another run for Congress from you? Well, uh, that is the question everyone wants the answer to, <laughs> and um, I think this is true of other. 
defendants in North Carolina as well. Uh, March 28th is when the Supreme Court is hearing our gerrymandering case here in North Carolina, a partisan gerrymandering case. We've already established that the, the districts are also racially gerrymandered. And so uh, the federal courts had previously ruled in the favor of getting new districts. Uh, for example, District 6, uh, which is obviously what I ran for, uh, is home to the only university in the entire country that isn't in one full congressional district. Um, North Carolina A&T, which is the largest historically black college and university or HBCU in the entire country, um, is the only university divided into two congressional districts. And that totally eliminates the voting power that North Carolina A&T does and can have. And so um, that uh, that March 28th hearing is really important to me. Um, I want to make sure that we're running in fair districts. Um, it's a 50-50 state in North Carolina for better or plus or minus 50-50, you know, split purple, truly a purple state. And yet uh, only of the 13 members of Congress that we have, only three are Democrats. Uh, so that just shows you the power of how gerrymandered these districts are. And before I make a decision, uh, I want to see the outcome of that to make sure that however the maps may move um, is is something that I'm called to do, something that I'm needed for. Um, they needed me to step up uh, in, in 2018, and it was such an honor and privilege to do so. I want to make sure that um, in my next run, whether it be in 2020 or beyond, that uh, that I'm in the, in the right place at the right time. And I think that that is a really critical factor for anyone making a decision about running is who could potentially also be in the race uh, how does the map move if a sitting congressman is all of a sudden, um, you know, a, a Democrat is all of a sudden the sitting congressman in my area? So those are all important decision making factors. And uh, I, I expect I'll have an announcement not too long after uh, the, uh, the the Supreme Court ruling. All right. March 28th. We'll be we'll be watching for that date. That's right. Maybe we can have a follow up and, and we can talk on the air about uh, a, a 20. We'll take on a whole new shape over the next month or so. That's for sure. There you go. We'd love to make that happen. So, Ryan, um, parting thoughts for anyone who might be considering jumping into the arena. What advice would you have? Be present. Um, I think it's really easy to get caught up in the decision-making process. Find a balance between making early connections, starting to toss the idea around, um, one thing I didn't do a good job of, um, although it ended up working out okay, but one thing I didn't do a good job of was socializing this idea with my friends and family, my close friends um, and all of my family to talk about this possibility. You know, uh, my parents were certainly on board. Uh, my now fiance um, didn't have as much say um, as she should have had. And so... Uh, that is something that you can, you must start there and you must make sure that your family is bought in uh, to the fact that this is an all-encompassing effort. There is no one in your family or your group of friends who won't become a part of this process. So make sure that you have buy-in from them and start working You know the county party chairs um, to get to know them, take them to lunch or coffee. And, and get their blessing uh, that they think it's a good idea. That is the best possible starting point. But I would definitely invest time as well 
once you've cleared those first two hurdles and making sure you go to at least one, if not more candidate training, you're going to not only learn a ton about how to run a campaign, but you're also guaranteed going to meet somebody else who is on the ballot somewhere with you. And those people can be your biggest allies because you cannot be in more than one place at once. But if you have really great relationships across the board with other candidates, they can speak on your behalf and that will make your life so much easier. I think that's really sound advice and that's probably a good place to leave it. Ryan, where can folks find you if they want to look you up after this? We are still very active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, You can find us on Watts for Congress. That's W-A-T-T-S-F-O-R. Congress, that's on Facebook and Twitter. And then the exact same thing, but the number for on Instagram. Uh, And we keep all of that updated very regularly. And uh, we'll continue to going forward. And we'd love to hear from any of you one-on-one if you'd like to to touch base. Send us a, a message on any of the above platforms. And we're happy to help you. Uh, as you proceed down your path uh, as best we can. Great. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. And for our listeners, uh, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Uh, follow us on social media at Millen Politics. Check out our merchandise in our store, millennialpolitics.co. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode.